Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with Pastor Jeff Myers from St. Louis, Missouri. We talked about his brand new book, Wisdom for Dissidents. It is a commentary on the book of James in the Through New Eyes commentary series from Athanasius Press. One book that came to mind, of course, during this interview was Pastor Meyer's book at Canon called The Lord's Service, The Grace of Covenant Renewal Worship. What should worship on Sunday look like? This book is a comprehensive introduction to covenant renewal worship. So if you're interested in what the Sunday service looks like, you can head to canonpress.com, get Pastor Meyer's book, The Lord's Service, The Grace of Covenant Renewal Worship. And now, without further ado, meet Pastor Jeffrey Myers. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Pastor Jeffrey Myers. He is the pastor of Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. He also has served on the board of trustees at Westminster Christian Academy in St. Louis, and he's on the board uh, for Theopolis Institute. Pastor Jeff Myers, thank you so much for coming on. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. So you have a brand new book out now with Athanasius Press called Wisdom for Dissidents, and it's a commentary on James, which that is an electric title. Way to go on titling that. Was that your idea? Yeah, they actually cut it down. Okay. Uh, The full title is on the title page. It's Ancient Wisdom for Today's Christian Dissidents, but it it wouldn't fit on the cover. Sure. (laughs) Wisdom for Dissidents, that's a great, it's a great title. Tell me about James. Where, Where did you, is this something you've been working on for some time. It's it's a uh, just looking at the page count. It's impressive for a commentary on James. Yeah, um, I started preaching on. Well, I probably preached on it a couple times at our church. I've done maybe five or six conferences and other places on it. Um, but it it began after I finished my work on Ecclesiastes. Okay, and thinking about wisdom in the New Testament and wisdom literature in the New Testament. And in uh, chapter four of James, you have the word vapor or vanity, uh, hebel in, in Hebrew. And I thought, well, there's a connection there, so I might as well work on James. But what I discovered in working through James was that James has a context that's a lot different than any of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And the context is the dispersion of Christians uh, uh, after the martyrdom of Stephen and the beginning of the severe persecution by Paul and others. That's recorded in Acts 8 and Acts 11. And so the problem that James addresses is Christian brothers, particularly leaders, I believe, thinking that they can uh, deliver their people and their church through violence, through angry rhetoric, through um, through using the same kinds of, of of tactics that the zealots used in the first century. And so the whole book, uh, if you understand it in that context, uh, comes to life uh, and it, it's connected. Oftentimes, James is viewed as a collection of, you know, wise aphorisms that are disconnected, but that's not the case. And so I argue that it's, it's, uh, 
connected in in surprising ways. And then, of course, it has some incredible significance to Christians today who are being marginalized uh, more and more in our culture. It's I I got very excited because often when I hear James mentioned in any sort of context where someone's going to expound on it or even just sort of half. Uh, academic, it's sort of a you know. Do James and Paul agree here? Or, you know, it, it's it gets into sort of uh, you know conversations of that nature, and you don't hear a lot about the context for James or anything of that nature. You yeah. you, you mentioned your book on Ecclesiastes. You have you also have a, a commentary with Athanasius uh, on Ecclesiastes. Do you mind setting up? Uh, I'm curious when you said you found uh, the same word used. What do you see as, what are the big differences for context? Can you tell us a little bit about the Old Testament context for Wisdom Lit? Yeah, sure. Um, Wisdom literature in the Old Testament, there's really five books of wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. Uh, I I think you could also probably include the Psalms. There are wisdom Psalms. the order in which those books are written, I think, is significant. Song of Songs, first, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Uh, and the reason it's significant is because the Song of Songs is, yes, it, it has to do with uh, love making and love between uh, a man and a woman, but it's not just about a manual for sex. It's basically about the passionate love that rulers and overseers have for their people and the people of their flock. Um, so, interestingly, the bride, Israel, is pictured here with land and garden symbolism, uh, and the husband, King Solomon, with palace and architectural symbolism. So, it's about, I think as Peter Lighthart has said, it's about political eros. It's about the love that a ruler should have for his people, and people should have for uh, their ruler. Uh, it's this idea that there's really is a connection between rulers and people, and it's not just that we're governed by abstract, impersonal laws. Proverbs, of course, is about the strength of wisdom. It's a father writing to his son, but it's not just a father. It's a king writing to his prince about what he's going to need to learn early on to rule, uh, and he's to embrace lady wisdom and avoid uh, you know, dame folly or whore folly. Job is about the failure of wisdom. Uh, the ruler becomes a scapegoat. Job is definitely a ruler. It's very clear in in that in there. And, and um, you know, you expect righteousness to be rewarded. And here's where you get something interesting, uh, a development from the Torah, uh, from the Torah into the wisdom literature. Because if you were to read in a simplistic way, the Torah, you'd think that, well, whenever we're obedient, we're just going to get blessed. And it's a tit for tat kind of thing. God rewards obedience. You know, Deuteronomy. 27, 28 seem to indicate that, uh, especially for nations. And there's some truth to that. But all of a sudden, we realize when we get into the kingdom phase of Israel's life that, hmm, okay, there's more to it than that. Uh, And so Job, you find out that Job, although he's a wise and a righteous man and a blameless man, uh, ends up going through all these trials. Well, why? Apparently to mature him. Um, And his, his advisors, his friends, so to speak, his staff, his cabinet, berates him and tries to get him to confess his sin. But it's pretty evident throughout that uh, the initial, at least the initial uh, 
troubles that Job experienced were not because of his sin, but because God wanted to do something with him um, and wanted to mature him. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, and this is a very old, wise Solomon who's lived his life, who's actually fallen, as we know, but he comes back and gives us some advanced wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is not about the failure of wisdom, but it's about the limitations of wisdom. Wisdom is good, but you can't control the world. You're not going to be be able to leverage your life with wisdom. Wisdom gives you some how-to for life, but you got to be careful with that. It's not just about skill. It's also about you're just learning to trust God. I remember reading when I was at uh, Concordia Lutheran Seminary working on doctoral stuff that Luther said that Ecclesiastes was the uh, Old Testament book of faith par excellence. And I thought, well, that's odd because I'm used to reading Ecclesiastes as if it was from a skeptic, you know, showing how you can't really make sense of the world until you become a believer. But it was really Luther that spurred me on to think, wait a minute. Uh, I'm a believer. I can't make sense of the world. <laughs> right. Uh, make, making sense and controlling the world is not what it's all about. Um, so that's just kind of a basic kind of overview of wisdom literature and how Ecclesiastes fits in. Now, so when you bring that to James, when or all of a sudden wisdom lit in the New Testament, you, yeah. you've already mentioned a little bit of the context of there was a martyrdom and, and everyone's sort of reacting to that. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Just in terms of how it functions in the New Testament canon? Yeah. Well, again, James has this context of persecution and what to do. It's also written, think about the New Testament canon when it was written. Everything in the New Testament is written during this transitional period from uh, AD 30, the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, to AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and God and Jesus predicted judgment on Israel, on the temple, on the priests, on everything. And the whole world is going to change for everybody when that happens. There will no longer be a central sanctuary. There will no longer be uh, uh, Levitical, Aaronic priest. Well, there will be, but not really as they were before priests. There won't be, everything changes. Um, and w- what happens is, it's apocalyptic. These, yeah, it's apocalyptic. What happens is you have these two options here, especially for Jewish Christians. So Jews that convert to the faith, they're living in this transitional time. They look back and they say, wait a minute, we had all this tradition, 1,500 years or more, 2,000 years to count Abraham, of tradition, of a, a sanctuary, whether it's a tabernacle or a temple, of priesthood, of of food laws, of Sabbath laws, of all of this, of a holy land and a holy city. And now you're asking me to get rid of it? And so one option is, and this is addressed in the book of Hebrews, is that you just go back. This is too hard. This is too difficult. This whole wilderness experience waiting for Joshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, to bring us into the promised land is too difficult. So Hebrews is all about them not shrinking back. Well, James is all about the other reaction is, okay, if, if you all are really uh, pursuing us, especially leaders, apostate leaders of the Jews, if you're rounding us up and imprisoning us and torturing us and killing some of us, we're not, we're not going to go back to you. We're going to fight back. Right. We're not going to shrink back. We're going to strike back. And so James has written 
uh, to give them wisdom on how to live in this new situation where they're not tempted to go back, but they're tempted to fight back and use the tactics of the zealots. And so James gives them the wisdom from above uh, at the end of chapter three, which is peaceable and pure and 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 uh, and so much different than the earthly demonic wisdom that comes up from, which is full of zealotry and political ambition in the wrong sense uh, and anger. And and so that's that's the way James fits in to that uh, context, that historical context. I think it is that wisdom above the sun. That Ecclesiastes, you know, this is life above the sun, or, or you know, things from above the sun. Um, right. Awesome. And then now, one of the other uh, in your intro, you mentioned there. There's also this aspect of how quickly change is occurring. You know, as far as those guys knew, Jesus has ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father. This is the better way than it was apparently the better way than him just charging Rome. And so they're sort of waiting for, you know, not, right. not revolution, but it may be heavenly revolution. And, and right, right. Yeah, no, that's good. They, they, I think they expected a bit more than what they got, especially initially, because Jesus promised that his kingdom was at hand. It was a kingdom of righteousness, which is another way of saying justice. Right. Um, and, but things didn't go like they expected. And that was frustrating for them. And you have to kind of put yourself in their situation where um, everything is going to hell. I mean, Jesus has been, their Messiah has been crucified. Nothing's happening to the leaders who crucified them. In fact, they seem to be gaining power. And the Jews, especially the apostate Jews, have kind of gone crazy. They're following Paul around. They're trying to kill him and stone him. They're they're uh, going from city to city and 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 uh, instigating riots. Uh, they're trying to get Rome to uh, imprison him and put him to death. And then when Rome finally is protecting uh, Paul at the end of Acts, uh, the Jews, a bunch of Jews, with the approval of the leaders in Jerusalem, uh, take an oath to assassinate Paul. So all of this is going on, and and. The, the Christians have to wonder, wait a minute, when is Jesus going to act? When is he going to implement his justice? And what James says to them is, look, guys, don't get angry. The anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God, the justice of God. There is a harvest of justice that's coming, end of James 3. But you have to be patient, James chapter 5. You have to recognize that, like the prophets, like like uh, Elijah, you're you're at a stage right now where you have to pray, you have to be faithful, but um, you have to wait for God to act His vengeance against His enemies. You mentioned too at the beginning that there's something to um, who James is writing to proper. So obviously, he's writing this is is a letter that most likely was read in the churches. But he is addressing leaders on some level, and you have a you have an interesting uh, preface or introduction that sort of talks about how we think cultures change, and a lot of times we have an idea of sort of uh, grassroots movements that sort of sweep through, and then eventually percolate up to the top, percolate up to leaders, and they sort of have to right. deal with this new way of thinking. 
Can right. you can you talk a little bit about what uh, you you think instead? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some truth to that, obviously, but there's been a lot about that, especially in America, that's grassroots kind of idea that uh, if we change enough people's minds, then the culture will change. I mean, there's some truth to that, but there's also, we need to remember that leaders uh, make a huge difference in forming and shaping the way people think about the world. I mean, we've come through this time period here in the 20th and the 21st century where uh, elites in um, education, in government, have shaped the way we think about everything. I mean, the whole homosexual movement began by infiltrating academic circles uh, and having this plan to change the way people think. Um, And it worked. Uh, And it's it's working in other areas, too. And I think Christians need to just be uh, wise about that. Wise. (laughs) There's a little wisdom. is it the way we lead and the positions that God puts us in in order to influence others is extremely important. Now, for James, he's writing to, I think, the pastors, the elders, or the leaders um, in these communities because he knows that it's their speech, it's their way of talking, it's their advice, their admonitions that's going to impact the way others behave. So you have that whole section in James 3 where uh, James is talking about how you know it's a small rudder that moves the whole ship, or it's a bridle in the horse's mouth that steers the horse. Well, he's talking about the words of leaders there, and pastors uh, and movement leaders have enormous influence. I think I mentioned this with regard to the Reformation. The Reformation was definitely a leader-instigated yeah, right. movement. There was there was some groundswell of of course, of dissatisfaction with Rome and dissatisfaction with the way that various countries were related or relating to Rome and, and submitting to Rome. That's a kind of political thing. And there's also, I'm sure, some spiritual dissatisfaction. But until Luther and Calvin and Bootser and Zwingli and Cranmer in England, until they actually put flesh and bones on the real problem, uh, nothing was going to happen. Uh, and they they instigated it. It uh, yeah. It it seems um, underappreciated to some level, like you were mentioning. I think with Obama changing his take on marriage alone, all of a sudden swung a door. No yeah. one could have maybe guessed at how much that would impact how the common man thought about marriage. Absolutely. Well, you know this silly phrase: you can't legislate morality, right? It's ridiculous. Right. All legislation is somebody's morality. Um, it just depends on who's gods, uh, Christians, or pagans and apostates. More and more, what's being legislated is not uh, Christian morality, but something else entirely. I think in your interview with Jerry Boyer on this book, he, I think he even titled it, was it the James Option? Uh, I think so. episode, yeah. yeah I thought that was I thought that was uh, as I was reading your book, I thought it was a great title because we are at a very interesting moment right now where a lot of people are reacting with anger. And, and you know, people that are on the quote unquote people are on the right side or seeing things very clearly are reacting with anger. And yeah. I think you have a, a, a great book for for the moment. 
Well, I mean, there's there's an, a certain appropriateness to anger at the right. situation, but it all depends on how that works out. I mean, you can work that out through praying and precatory psalms and asking God to judge, and also work it out in ways that are consistent with whatever your situation and calling might be. Okay, uh, if you're uh, an official in a city, if you're a, a legislator, if you're a judge, if you're a policeman, there are ways for you to work out that anger in righteous ways. Right. Um, but what James, you know, another so for example, another way that James says you should not uh, work out your anger at the current situation is by sucking up to those who are in power and thinking that somehow you're going to change your situation by, you know, cozying up to them. That's James chapter two. So a rich man, it's not just a rich man in James two that comes in. It's a rich man with a robe of office and a, and a signet ring of power. And the idea is you're going to give him a good place thinking somehow he's going to cut you a deal, give you a break. That often does not happen. Uh, that's, and that's not a faithful way to respond to um, your, a situation. There, there, so there's that as well that's addressed by James. So that was your book on James. Uh, before we started, I mentioned you also have The Lord's Service, which mm-hmm. is published by, uh, by Canon Press. As you look over those three books, and th- this is sort of what's gone to print, do you see anything as you look at that and just think, you know, what are things that interest you? Can you tell us a little bit about what motivates you or what interests you most? You're a pastor of the gospel, so clearly it's the gospel. But do you have certain interests and proclivities of interest? How would you describe those? Yeah, good. That's a good question. Well, um, I've always been interested in liturgical theology and liturgical practice. Uh, so the Lord's service yeah. is an outgrowth of that. Still am. Still do some writing on that, still still implement that in our church and always kind of refining it in ways. Sure. I mean, that book is old now. It's probably 20 years old, at least as it began. So there's some some changes I've made to to it in in in, in some ways. Um so there's that. Uh, but then also just the whole cultural political situation. I've always been interested in that. When I came into the Reformed world in 1980, I went to uh, a church in the city, a PCA Presbyterian church in the city I was at. I was in the army at the time, and um, right away I, I I was I was handed a Manila folder full of all kinds of articles, and all of them dealt with political issues. And in, in that in 1980, there was no internet, so it was all newsletters, yeah. Uh, yeah. newsletters from Calcedon, newsletters from well, all over the place. And I started reading those and thinking, wow, the, the Christian faith has something to say to our political problems, our political issues. And so that has always motivated me, too. I think that the church has a, has a duty to inform. This is somewhat simple, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe in this two kingdoms idea that somehow there's this kingdom that's uh, the, the, the world, the political world, the cultural world is kind of ruled by natural law and the church by biblical law. I, I just, right. 
don't believe that. I don't think that's helpful. So that has motivated me as well, just to see biblical principles lived out by individual Christians and churches, but also in culture. Now, uh, you, you are a pastor in the PCA, and you have made a major influence on CREC churches. I was sp- speaking with um, Pastor Wilson the other day, and he mentioned the two books. Two of the books that made a huge impact on how he thought about worship was The Lord's Service by yourself, and I believe the other one was The Kingdom and the Power by Peter Lightheart. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of just a biographical sketch, how did you get involved? You mentioned Chalcedon. That's, uh, that was Rush Dooney's outlet. Right. Um, right. How did you get involved with all these characters? Well, what, what happened was I, I, was, I grew up Lutheran, Missouri okay. Synod Lutheran. So from earliest age, I was immersed in a, a, a good liturgy and great music, great German uh, hymnody. And so uh, I, I had that kind of in my blood, in my muscle memory, if you will. So there's that. But in college, um, I was in danger of falling away. I was a real mess for a couple of years. But the guys that brought me back into the faith were dispensational, Dallas Theological Seminary guys in the 70s. They were, they were the ones who were faithful to the Bible. And so I learned from them. I became a dispensationalist, pretty much... Um, you know, rapture, uh, and the world's going to end, you know, surely by 1988, 1988. probably by 1984. Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I read my way out of that just, uh, as luck would have it as, you know, as Providence would have it by picking up a few reform books that critique dispensationalism, but, oh, wow, look at that. It's not really as, as simple as I thought it was. Then I went into Presbyterian church, as I mentioned, and really me getting involved with liturgy uh, had to do basically with reading these newsletters. And James B. Jordan was one of the newsletter writers. And so uh, Biblical uh, Horizons is Biblical that what, Horizons. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was I was involved in the first Biblical Horizons conferences, and I've been with them ever since. Of course, now now that the mantle is kind of passed to Peter Lightheart and Theopolis. Sure. But it was really James Jordan's influence. I I studied under him for three years while I was teaching school in Tyler, Texas. And that was influential. I've always been good friends with him. And his influence has been huge uh, on my understanding of the Bible and liturgy and relationship between church and culture. That's awesome. I so I grew up in North Texas, and I only knew Tyler, Texas, as the place with uh, there was a, a summer camp called Pine Cove there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know our youth group we had there, and that's what I knew Tyler, Texas, as. And it's been fun as like with college and everything else as I fell down the rabbit hole of sort of the men that we've been mentioning, right. uh, and to see that Tyler, Texas, played you know somewhat of a significant role in in sort of our heritage. And what I see is Canon Press's heritage. So, so anyway, that's fascinating to know that you were you were also in Tyler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I was there in Tyler when uh, David Chilton wrote his book Paradise Restored. Wow. Um, and I'm trying to think he might have he might have already written Rich Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. You know that. Which, so that's still a great book. <laughs> so good, and that just came up in here in the office because. I don't know if you just saw Christianity Today 
uh, well alerted me that Ron Sider just died. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, I thought, man, I don't know that people know how much influence he's had on mainline evangelicalism, just sort of training the sensibilities of, I have stuff and I feel vaguely guilty for it, and I'm not sure why. Um, And I think, (laughs) you know, Ron Sider's books, like, really jumped on that sensibility up and down and up and down and up and down. Yeah. And there was and there was Chilton and Gary North just chasing that guy into the grave, I'm sure. So um <laughs> Yeah, anyway. I, sometimes they were a little bit too provocative and a little bit sure. too derogatory. Um sure. I tweeted <laughs> I tweeted I there was a section of the introduction to the at least I don't remember which edition I have of Productive Christian. It's called Productive Productive Christians. In a world of guilt manipulators, I think is maybe what oh, it's it called. Oh, it is productive. I said rich, yeah. It's productive Christians in an age of guilt manipulators or something yes, like that. that's it. That's it. And uh, yeah. because Cider's book was called Rich Christians, rich Christians. in an exactly. Age of Hunger. And yes, you can just, right. uh, I mean, what a title. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, Gary North never wanted to check his swing, you know, several times in his introduction to Children's book was like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Ron Cider's. Uh, intellectual life is dead at this point. Or, you know, it's like, at this point, it's funny and it's distant enough that it's like, man, that guy never checked a swing. I do think that if I remember reading correctly, that that uh, Sider eventually modified his position somewhat and went for a more market-oriented interesting approach to serving the poor. But uh, I'm not sure how that worked itself out. I just remember reading that. That's interesting. Years ago. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I actually thought about it. I said, I was telling the guys in the office, we should maybe do something on Ron Sider. It would just be interesting. I, I, my guess is a lot of people listening to this would be surprised at the name or, you know, they, they may not know that name, but he's, he's played a major role. So that's, that's true. That's true. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I'm very grateful uh, uh, for your time and I hope all is well with the book sales and everything else. Everyone can go Thank get you. those. Do you have a preference on where people pick that book up? Nope. Amazon.com. I, I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Awesome. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I make more money one way or the other, but I have no clue. Awesome. Just, yeah. They're easy matter. enough to find. You can find them at Amazon or at AthanasiusPress.com. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Myers, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.